Hello and welcome back to the Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. On this week's podcast, will they or won't they? EU-UK negotiations reach fever pitch. My panel and I attempt to read the runes. We chat to our special guest, Majid Majid, about that much ballyhooed but non-existent entity, The North, about the future of immigration, young people in politics and the green agenda. We gaze into the foggy horizon of what the high street might look like after the pandemic with expert Harry Wallop. And finally, my panel educates me on what is Spotify wrapped, why I should unwrap it and what politicians' melodic preferences reveal. All this and a little more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. Just a quick reminder before we start, on Thursday, 17th of December at 8pm, we're doing a live holiday edition Zoom event. It's exclusive for Patreon backers of The Bunker and Oh God What Now. If you're a Patreon, there's an invite in your inbox. If not, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up and see the panel in their full festive glory. Now let's meet today's panel. First up, she is the editor of the LSE's COVID blog. You can follow it on Twitter at LSE Public Policy, all one word. She is Roz Taylor. Hello, Roz. Hello. It has just been announced that Sir Peter Gross will head the government's review of the Human Rights Act. What is your first reaction? Probably astonishment that uh, the government has time to do this stuff when it is in the middle of trying to get a last-minute Brexit deal and dealing with COVID. (laughs) But it's still pushing through with what is, okay, a manifesto commitment uh, to allegedly update the Human Rights Act, and but that it hasn't been distracted from this, this plan. The government is promising to update the Act, which is a step back from previous pledges to do away with it or replace it. Labour still think it's just a Trojan horse to downgrade rights and called it bonkers. Is there a real danger here for our rights? Yes, there is. Uh, There was a slightly disingenuous statement that the Lord Chancellor put out earlier, and he was saying that the review is about whether the HRA is working effectively. It's not really about that at all. Um, it would be very interesting to hear if the HRA is working effectively and if people's human rights are being protected as a result of it. But that's not what we're getting. We're getting an invitation to find ways of updating it. It's also a bit surprising to me that the man in charge of it is a uh, ex-judge, of course, as you'd expect, and a commercial lawyer, um, not in this sphere at all. And there are some you know, reasonably good people on the panel, mm. no very, very strong supporters of human rights. but. This is a worrying move, yeah. and I think we need to watch it very, very closely. And we will. Also with us today, we have the Atlantic staff writer and our unofficial US bureau chief, Yasmin Sirhan. Yasmin, hello. Hi there. Um, Yasmin, tomorrow has been dubbed V-Day as the first doses of the vaccine are expected to be administered. Is this as universal a triumph as is touted? Um, well, I mean, it's certainly a 
big deal um, for Britain, at least. I mean, the Pfizer rollout um, would make Britain the first Western country to license a COVID vaccine. Um, as, as, as I think we all know, Russia and China beat the rest of the world to the punch, I should say. Um, and it's the first country to give regulatory approval to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, um, which I think is 95% effective. So yeah, I mean, with uh, this week, I think Britain has ordered 40 million doses. So that's enough to vaccinate 20 million people, which I think is, correct me if I'm wrong, about a third of Britain's population, which is no small amount. Um, so in that respect, it's a huge deal. But um, but there's always a but, of course. And um, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, as great as this is for Britain and a lot of other high-income countries that are anticipated to sort of follow its lead um, in approving a lot of these vaccines, um, there is really a long road ahead to the global recovery. Um, I think something that a lot of folks have been sort of talking about, and I think we'll talk about even more in the coming weeks, is this concept of vaccine nationalism and this notion of countries effectively trying to secure as many doses for their own population as they can. Mm. Um, the problem with that is that, I mean, you have countries like Britain, you have EU countries, you have countries like Canada, who are securing loads of doses for their own population, makes sense, right? But who are also involved in COVAX, which is the international entity aimed at trying to have as much equitable distribution of the vaccine as possible. So regardless of a country's wealth, just equitable access to the vaccine. Mm. But by striking all these bilateral deals, as Britain has done, as Canada has done, um, they're actually kind of undermining that effort because what we know for sure is that there's going to be a limited amount of doses, especially at the onset. Um, and effectively, when countries are reserving these millions of doses for their own population, they are taking away from what's left for the rest of the world. You know, and, and I think something that, you know, this pandemic has proven is that this is truly a global crisis, and it's only going to really be solved once we've solved it globally. I think if, you know, the vaccine is allowed to be endemic anywhere, it's a threat to us everywhere. So while this certainly is promising news, um, you know, I, I wouldn't get too excited uh, just yet. Now, Trump held a victory rally last weekend. <laughs> um, is there any sense in trying to rationally dissect this madness anymore? Or are we just in a holding pattern waiting for this toxic ghost to be exercised from the White House so we can start arguing actual policies again? Or, or would, would it be dangerous to switch off? It's, there is definitely a temptation, and I've fallen into it myself, to kind of think, you know, the U.S. election is over, I'm going to turn away from it. But um, there's some real damage that's going on currently. The, the efforts that he's going to, to call this a rigged election, to undermine confidence in U.S. democracy. Um, and, and pl you know, plainly, the, the Republican Party, at least some aspects of its willingness to kind of go along with this charade, is really, really distressing. Um, and, you know, if President Trump is laying the groundwork for how one can, you know, undermine an election, get large swathes of the population to distrust the electoral process, we could have a situation for eight years from now where someone much smarter, much more capable is able to learn from what President Trump's done and, and mm. try to take it further. So, um, you know, I, I'm personally trying to fight the urge to just ignore and, you know, kind of turn to what's coming next with the new administration. We shall all join you in your efforts <laughs> to, to not ignore what's going on. And finally, today's special guest, we we are exuberantly exultant to be joined by Majid Majid. So good they named him twice. He's a former city councillor and Lord Mayor of Sheffield, a former Green Party MEP and author of the new book, The Art of Disruption, a manifesto 
Minister for Real Change, and he's still only 31, the rotter. <laughs> Welcome to the banker, Majid. How are you? <laughs> Honestly, that was very, thank you very much for the warm introduction. I'm doing great. Thank you very much. I'm just in and um, best part of uh, the UK in Sheffield. And I'm basically, yeah, just, just getting on with things and it's getting cold, just staying indoors at the moment. But yeah, no, I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> thank you very much. Majid, as a fellow migrant, there there is sometimes a weird duality in how I see the UK as both a place which is home and I love, but also a sort of horrifying reality show I am just watching. It's a, it's a goggle box version of citizenship. Right now, do you feel more a part of this skip fire or an observer of it? Mm, great question. Just, I guess, by virtue of just living in the UK and, of course, loving the UK and calling the UK home, I feel more of a participant more than an observer to be honest. Of course, I am observing what's going on in horror at times, but it's just, I feel as if like, I've got responsibility to actually try and play some sort of positive, active role in that. And I would do that, I guess, wherever I lived very Morris. And I guess you could say maybe that's just me as a person and some other people who have moved to the country may have may just be observing. But I think if you don't like the situation you're in, it's best to kind of try and do whatever you can. Of course, everyone's got different abilities and everything. But I guess I feel more of a participant, And if I'm being honest. A player. <laughs> yeah, a player. In, in your book, The Art of Disruption, you describe many occasions on which you have had to act as a sort of cultural bridge for your mum. Do you think this unofficial UK ambassador role that so many immigrant children play for their parents fundamentally informs how you reach out to people? When we came to when we first came to the country, we weren't able to speak English, of course. But and as you, when you're a child, you tend to pick up the language a lot quicker. So there was many occasions where I guess myself and I'm sure many other immigrant children can also have had similar experiences where we take on extra responsibilities other children our age wouldn't do, like translating. And it wasn't honestly, it wasn't even just my mother. It would be other people in the community that I'd also end up translating for. But it was <laughs> more of a kind of a community and aspect thing. And it was having to take your child to the doctors, and even on personal matters, and just having your them to kind of translate for you can be a bit difficult. But I guess it just felt as if like, listen, we're just dealing with whatever the situation that we were in at the time. And of course, like my mum can speak English now, but it, it just seemed as if like it was just we had to do what we had to do. And I guess like I was fortunate enough that we grew up in a really cultural, diverse part of Sheffield. So we didn't really necessarily kind of stick out as much. Mm. Much more from our guest later in the podcast. Now, it has become a cliche to say it's crunch time for the EU-UK negotiations. Only this week it happens to be true. Rumours, speculation, backstabbing, factionalism, claim and rebuttal. The UK said last week that a deal was in sight. The EU immediately reposted, oh, no, it isn't. The EU said that progress had been made on fishing quotas. The UK instantly retorted, oh, no, it hasn't. It is a pantomime edition of the Borgias. And as businesses are told to prepare for either a terrible outcome or a truly catastrophic one, journalists are reduced to trying to glean whether progress is being made based on who got what train and what the negotiators ordered for lunch. Roz, away from all the speculation, what do we know know about the state of play at the moment, 5pm on Monday evening? (laughs) 
Uh, we're in a state of extreme brinkmanship at the moment. We know what the sticking points are now. Uh, we have done for some time, to be honest. They are fish, obviously, <laughs> and the level playing field, uh, which has also been a long-term issue. And we know that the hard deadline for a decision seems to be Thursday. I think that the EU is going to basically trigger no-deal preparations if nothing is agreed by Thursday. And Johnson has claimed, although what use is, you know, how much can we trust Johnson's word? Not very much. But he said that he will not continue to negotiate into the new year. So that seems to rule out any extension beyond Christmas. Of course, if there's no deal, he'll have to negotiate into the new year because we'll still need a deal, won't we? Well, that is a very interesting question. I mean, we do need a deal, ultimately, yes. But I think it will be a while before Johnson and his government are ready to sit back down at the table again. So you think we'll have a little bit of a clean break and then sort of get back to it? Um, I think I think what much depends on the on public opinion, much depends on the extent of the disruption. If the public seem kind of indifferent or more preoccupied with COVID, then it will be a long time, I think, before negotiations restart, especially as they're not a priority for the EU. They're only going to be a priority for us. Hmm. It will be a point of honour not to return to the negotiating table because that will be an admission that Johnson took the wrong uh, decision. And there will have to be some tangible change in the EU's offer. And I don't see that happening. T- tell me, is the fact that just before we started recording, the government has offered to remove those offending clauses from the internal market bill, is that a good sign? I don't think it necessarily is. It's very hard to judge whether this is just for show or whether it's a genuine offer. It could well be just an effort to be able to say if the talks do collapse, well, we tried, we put out, we made a last offer and the EU rejected it. Mm-hmm. So is it really conceivable that negotiations will fall apart over herring quotas or is the level playing field really much more of the issue as EU officials have quietly been briefing? Yeah, I think a level playing field is more of an issue. It's all it's not just about aligning the rules. It's about state aid. Johnson wants the freedom to use state aid to try and rev up the economy after COVID-19 and there is no doubt that a level playing field would restrict his ability to do that. So I do I do think I mean fish is something that can be spun to be honest because mm. the amounts involved as we know are small and because it's all pretty unclear to everyone where the fish goes when it's caught so yes level playing field ultimately it's about sovereignty this is about demanding absolute sovereignty and the logical end game if you demand absolute sovereignty is not to have a level playing field because the two are It's not to have any any deal at all exactly isn't it? yeah, yeah. Um, Majid, the the coherence of the intelligence I'm getting from Brussels fell apart some days ago. I I have literally people working the same bit of the commission telling me opposite readings of what's going on. It's that confused. Do you still have contacts with people there? What do what do they make of it? What do you make? Yeah, um, of it? I'm still in touch with quite a few um, MEPs from the SND group and GUE. And honestly, like the feeling that I kind of get from them is a lot of people are just sick and tired of it. And of course, ideally, it's people want to deal just so they can basically pass it through and kind of get on with things. But they literally just look... <laughs> they want to get Brexit yeah, honestly, done. How ironic. <laughs> I guess if I'm being honest, even when I was sat in the European Parliament, it was like, even with a lot of sympathetic colleagues were like, of course we want you to stay, but this is just getting ridiculous. Like it's just, 
let's just kind of get a deal and move on. So I think a lot of them are just in despair with the UK. And it's fair to say they kind of don't respect the UK's negotiating team as much, And if I'm being honest. But it's just, yeah, it's frustrating for a lot of them. But one thing I'll be interested, intrigued to know is how much the US, the recent US elections has impacted the negotiations. Because of course we know mm. Donald Trump was... You say had a good, a regular good um, relationship with Boris Johnson, and of course, when um, the BBC asked Biden and um, what he thought of, I think like the, the um, elections or something, he just basically turned around and he goes, "And I'm Irish." So of course, they've got priority in looking at the Good Friday Agreement and seeing that as a big deal. So it'll be interesting to see if that has shifted the negotiations at all. The the role of the European Parliament has been reduced to effectively a rubber stamper of the deal. Is that a mistake? Uh, Or are the negotiators right to feel confident that if member states basically swallow a deal, MEPs have little choice but to do likewise? It's sad, but it's true. So it does seem as if, like, of course, it's just going to be a rubber stamping kind of procedure. Of course, they can challenge it, but it still needs to go through the European Parliament. More or less, but I, the European Commission, they'd make sure everything was buttoned up before it even got to the European Parliament. And I think at the current stage, it's in. I think the European Parliament, apart from, should we say, the ECR group, would basically just vote the deal through. If I'm being honest. Mm. And let's not forget that uh, the Canada deal almost fell apart because the Walloon Assembly refused to approve it for months. So there's also national ratification to come. Yasmin, is there any international treaty that doesn't involve some limiting of absolute sovereignty? They are, after all, the legal expression of a country saying, I will do X and not do Y. Right. Not that I know of. I mean, that's that's pretty much every every treaty, as you say, but also like every trade deal. I mean, it's, um, it, it's kind of mind boggling to me because, you know, back when I did focus on Brexit more, um, you know, when I spoke to experts, they would always tell me that, you know, when it came to things like trade negotiations, like these are things that usually take years, um, mm. kind of even just listening to the conversation so far, like the fact that they were trying to overcome a lot of these issues, granted from a situation of being quite close in in such a short period of time is kind of just mind boggling to me still. Um, Dan Hannan on Sky News, a friend of the <laughs> programme, on Sky News <laughs> on Monday complained that the EU are not acting in the same way they would to any other third country, that they are rancorous, emotional and looking to punish the UK. Does he have a point? Um, I mean, I really don't see what need the EU would have to punish the UK. I mean, I think we've all been punished these last few years, kind of having to go through all of this. Um, (laughs) But no, you know, I, I think that sort of interpretation ignores the fact that the EU needs this deal just as much as the UK does. I mean, people can make arguments about who's the bigger economy and to whom it would hurt more. But at the end of the day, these are two partners sitting at a table who both have an interest to get a deal. Um, and, yes. you know, I don't think that changes. Um, but but what's more, I mean, you know, it, it, it's not like the EU needs to dissuade other members from leaving. I mean, we're, we're not, you know, bracing for a Frexit or a Swexit or any of the other varieties. I, I think, you know... The, that sort of reading, I think, kind of just harkens back to that initial sort of Brexity idea of, you know, the EU is just overpowering and domineering and we need to kind of go off on our own. Yeah. Majid, this was, Brexit was an emotional decision by the UK. It wasn't a decision, you know, weighing the economic uh, outcome. Uh, So was it reasonable to expect then our former 
partners to act in an entirely dispassionate way because this really hurt in Brussels as well. This really felt like a snub in European capital. So was it reasonable to basically expect to date the spouse you just divorced? <laughs> of course, it 100%. It, was, it felt like a massive um, snub. And I, even from like... A lot of people um, in the European Parliament, a lot of people were frustrated purely because in terms of the way the campaigns were run, the, a lot of the lies that were kind of told about the European Union. So they did massively felt a lot of hurt at the time. But of course, at the same time, they realised that if you're not part of the single market, if you're not part of the European Union, you're potentially going to be a competitor. So it's like, of course, we have got no choice. Like, you're our closest neighbours. We have to have some sort mm. of relationship. So let's try and make it as an amicable one as much as possible. But at the same time, you kind of have to respect our rules because you've chosen, like, well, I don't know if you could argue that the Britain has chosen, but anyway, we've left the European Union. So I guess it's, we just have to deal with a messy situation. <laughs> um, Roz, the more optimistic interpretation is that this is the theatre that necessarily precedes a compromise that both sides need to sell to their domestic audience. The less optimistic interpretation is that talks have fallen apart and we're heading for no deal, but neither side wants to be the one that walks away. Where do you fall in that division? I have long thought that there was bound to be a deal in the end because rationality demanded it. But in the course of the past four and a half years... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have been wrong many times because rationality has not led the government's <laughs> action. And I begin to think that as we, over that time, have steadily moved towards not, you know, the hardest possible Brexit and now the possibility of no deal, that in a sense there is now a narrative where anything less than no deal will not satisfy those people who are clamouring for it. And the people, unfortunately, who are clamouring for it are very hardline Eurosceptic MPs and the Cabinet and Johnson himself. I think psychologically now for Johnson, Johnson is not in a bad place. He now has the prospect of a vaccine. He's very pleased that Britain has been the first country to get the vaccine approved and rolled out. Of course, he claimed that that was because we were not in the EU anymore, which was not true, but that's what he claimed and nonetheless <laughs> happened. And I think now there's almost going to be a gambling part of his personality which will say, yeah, to hell with it. This is what, you know, this is what I've been working towards. Let's just, let's roll the dice. Let's just go for happens. it, yeah. Yasmin, was Anglocentricism always a, a, a big obstacle? I mean, the idea that because Brexit is the most important issue to England, Everyone else, Scotland, the EU, the US, the Commonwealth, had to stop whatever they were doing, especially in the middle of Mm. a pandemic, and just give this their undivided attention. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly perhaps the case with regard to kind of just, you know, the UK's constituent parts in the EU. Um, But, you know, I I think speaking, obviously, as an American who has been home in quite some time, I've never really gotten the impression that, you know, particularly with the incoming administration, whilst, of course, they care about the Good Friday Agreement and everything else, like, you know, I I don't think that this is something that the US is going to lose sleep over. But yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely an element to that. I mean, particularly for you know, constituent parts of, of the UK that that didn't vote for this, but but feel like, you know, the the, the union itself um, is, is kind of just being disregarded in this big fight. Um, 
but, but yeah, it will be interesting to, to kind of see how I, I kind of get the sense to, to the point that Majid made at the beginning. I think there is a level of exhaustion. Everyone wants a break. Yeah. Basically. So I, I don't, you know, it definitely <laughs> has kind of taken everyone's attention, but I can't imagine it will for much longer. Our guest today is Majid Majid, or as he was known at the University of Hull, Magic Majid, the submission magician. I shall probe this point no further. Okay. <laughs> uh, Majid, you came to the UK at five years old as a child refugee from what is now Somaliland. Um, do you remember much about your time there? Honestly, I was a bit, things were just a bit oblivious. And I think my mom really blessed her, did a good job of trying to, I guess, I don't know, but there's not much I remember apart from moving around. I guess there was one, like, I remember, like, ridiculous things. Like, I remember um, when we was in a camp in Ethiopia, um, of course, we didn't have much toys or anything. So we'd always kind of come up with things to kind of amuse ourselves with. And I remember we'd get, like, branch sticks and we'd find a plastic bag, because you can find them anywhere in the world. And then we'd mm. basically just wrap the plastic bag around the uh, sticks and we just run around in circles and just capture some air in them and just imitate balloons of some sort. But then it's just honestly, I'll be honest with you. I just like, as a kid, even though with everything that was happening, I just remember playing a lot and just being oblivious to what was happening. If you were to ask my mother that same question, she'll have a completely different experience. Of course. Of course. Fast forward, really not a very long time. And you were elected Sheffield city councillor for Broomhill and Sharrow Vale in 2016 and became Lord Mayor of Sheffield by 2018, still in your 20s. What what got you into politics at such an unusually young age? Do you know, it's, I was involved in student and university, my students' union, and I actually got and I was student union president when I was at university, but I'll be quite honest with you, I didn't even know the difference between left and right in the political spectrum. I wasn't involved in politics. I knew I cared about issues. I wanted to eradicate the hidden cost, cost of university fees and time for free education, all that sort of stuff. But it was just seeing uh, Nigel Farage and UKIP just do so well. And I just remember thinking to myself, with everything that was happening, with all the like, so much rhetoric of fear, hate and division, I think, I thought to myself, if I can at least make my small part of the world, my Sheffield, my community that bit better and play some sort of active role. That's me doing something. And it just got to a point mm. where it's realized I couldn't keep on asking the wrong people to do the right thing. And nobody asked me to stand to be a counselor. But I was like, right, like, how can I become a counselor? <laughs> and then I just basically just stood to be a counselor. And then I guess one thing led to another. Now, a year later, you were elected as the Green MEP for Yorkshire and Humber. Mm. Um, what, what, drew you to the Green Party? I mean, you say when you sort of went into it, you didn't know the the labels, yeah, as it were. When I, but... at university, I guess when I, jo- I joined the Green Party in, um, after the European elections, and I guess, I'll be honest, I didn't join the Green Party for its uh, environment and climate and aspect of its policies, to be frank. For me, it was like a lot of my values and principles drew me, drew me to the Green Party, even though my family and friends were Labour Party supporters. I just refused to accept that the future authors of our country were people like Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, especially when I knew we had a better story to tell of Britain, where we all played some sort of played the protagonist in some shape or form. And then I just wanted to. So, like when I stood to be an um, MP, like I was loudly and proudly campaigning to make that we should remain the European Union, even despite all the flaws of the European Union. Ca- loudly and proudly campaigned for freedom of movement. The fact that immigrants do make Britain great. And it's just, yeah, so for me, I was quite unapologetic in my approach. And then I guess 
the rest and I, I just got elected uh, mm. thanks to the wonderful people of Yorkshire and Hull. Now, it would take half this podcast to list all the ceilings you have smashed, if, you know, to list all the youngest person to do this and the first British Somali person to achieve that. Suffice it to say, you rock. Uh, you are one of time's hundred rising stars shaping the future of the world now. Is that a cross as well as a blessing? I mean, is there a pressure to go on to more and more and achieve more, to open more doors? Are you still in charge of your future, is what I'm trying to, you know, to get. Or are you just dragged along by this torrent? Do you know, man? honestly, it's, it's definitely, there's a lot. Of course, you know, like, I feel a lot of pressure, and it's like, Jesus Christ. But it's just, it's a blessing and a curse. Like, honestly, like, it's, I'm grateful more than anything else. And one thing you realise when you get involved in politics, so you become elected, is that the first thing you realise that you don't do it by yourself. At the same time, it's what you do with it that counts. And I always say, like, God gave us two hands, one to climb and the other one to kind of lift people up as well. So I've always, a big part of everything I do is giving back and making sure that I'm supporting, whether that be other young people and like different mentoring schemes that I'm involved in, but just basically making sure that I'm, as much as I'm kind of, people are helping support me, that I'm giving back as much as possible as well. So Majid, we all heard about Liverpool and Manchester and Andy Burnham, of course, but what was the situation like in Sheffield with COVID? And how much help did you get in, from central government? So it was like, we're currently we're in tier three and in Sheffield. And so put it this way, where it's we, our um, regional elected mayor for South Yorkshire um, is Dan Jarvis. He basically, he accepted um, the deal of course, it's garnered a bit of a backlash. Should have accepted. He should have basically asked for more money. But it was honestly like it's massively exposed what I guess many people have been arguing for a long time that we are only as secure as the most vulnerable um, people amongst us. So the red wall is kind of it's intact in Sheffield, isn't it? Because you've got three Labour MPs, haven't you? <laughs> I, there, there was one seat, Stocksbridge and Penistone, that went. Tory for the first time. What do you think about that that constituency that did flip? Do you think people are, are getting pretty disillusioned with the Tories at this point, or is there not much much side of that yet? I'll be honest with you, I've not been to Stocksbridge and Penny Stone to kind of ask people, but one thing I have noticed, I did see the Channel 4 um, news the other day where they basically was re- reporting on is the Red Wall crumbling, and they went to parts of the Red Wall and I basically asked, and there's a lot of people who are slowly basically just getting disillusioned with the Conservative Party because it was the first time many of these people voted Conservative but it's a lot of people are kind of putting down and the response that the Tory government and Boris had in terms of tackling the coronavirus was really piss poor and as a result maybe that they, they would they wouldn't necessarily vote Conservative again and I actually like if I had to predict I would say come the next general election I would say it would go back to being red go back to but at the same time the uk we suffer from short-term memory loss you see so it's like despite how many things like god what happens it's just people tend to forget like and it's just it's so frustrating at times majid yasmin here um so many leave voters think that the points-based system and a similar to australia will quote-unquote solve immigration as an issue um but obviously many folks have kind of called into question whether it actually will what will happen when it doesn't it's in terms of the points-based system, it's, I guess if it doesn't work, which I, I can't see, like, because we still need my immigration in, in the UK, whether that be for our um, NHS and lots of different other, uh, different sectors. So we're not, it's not like we're not going to, we're going to stop migration in the UK, but I can't help but feel like a lot of at times, a lot of people, a lot of the reasons why they want controls on immigration or they want immigration stopped 
period is because there's for them it's, it's a case of well there's not enough school places or I have to wait a long time to see the NHS because whenever I go to A and E, it's always full of migrants. But you know, like it's a, a lot of those kind of issues are failed, failed government policy, and not necessarily issues of basically migrants coming in because we know like migrants contribute in every aspect of our lives. So I reckon there'll st- a lot of people will still be complaining about migration, still be like, but we've still vote, we've voted to leave or we've got a new points-based system. Why aren't, why am I not seeing less migrants? Why am I not seeing? So it's, I reckon it'll be, it'll be, there'll be a lot of, they'll be surprised. Mm. So I know Brexit is kind of been seen, at least by some, as sort of an expression of mm-hmm. latent xenophobia. Um, but the Social Attitude Survey has shown improvement since the referendum and the pandemic has also been showcasing, kind of as you were just saying, all the stuff that migrants do to contribute to this country, whether it's, you know, inventing vaccines, looking after the elderly as carers. Um, which way do you think that pendulum has moved overall? I'd, I'd, I'd like to think the pendulum has moved to a more positive outcome where I guess, I guess by virtue of like it's people seeing migrants on the front line because a lot of the times it was, and people just necessarily might have not known the role that like a lot of the, the big impact that migrants had in the UK. But I guess due to the pandemic, seeing a lot of migrants on the front lines, whether that be um, your bus drivers or your doctors, your NH, like it's, I'd like to think that shifted. But I guess at the same time, it's you've got like a lot of the tabloids still spouting out a lot of xenophobic rhetoric. Now, t- tangentially related to that, as horrible as the pandemic has been, it's also been an opportunity for a, a reset in, in environmental terms. The EU have sought to make the recovery fund an explicitly green one. Mm. Our government seems a little bit more reticent to grab that chance for change. What do you think of the government's net zero plans? Yes, so um, Claire O'Neill, I think her name was, she was like a former energy minister, and she was the one that I got axed um, as the COP president and in January. Right? She basically came out and said that um, the government cabinet minister were basically acting like amateurs, from my point of view, and from a lot of people's point of view, from the Green New Deal UK, it seems like a bit of a wish list more than more than anything else. So, of course, the devil is in is is in the detail. It's it's yeah. I'm not very hopeful in terms of the promises um, that the that Britain's basically come up with in, in terms of its climate plan. I think it released a couple of weeks ago. So it's yeah, it's difficult. But I guess it's we'll just see if it's just a wish list or if it's basically going to get acted upon. Manjit, uh, uh- people of colour effectively locked out of the green debate? Is it just seen as a middle-class white thing? <laughs> it is predominantly kind of white and middle-class people majority of the times. But we know at the same time is if we look at um, who those people who are affected, negatively affected by the climate crisis, whether that be the global south or the UK, it's mainly black and brown communities, and it's like, if you look at, for example, in the UK, Ella Kissy Debris, and who was a young girl, I think like six years old, who died basically as a result of air pollution, and who was a young black girl. And if you look at all of the kind of communities that have got uh, the worst polluted areas is those uh, marginalised communities, those black and brown communities. So it's yet those voices aren't represented. So the people who are most affected by the climate crisis or haven't got a voice at the table. And I think like that's slowly starting to change, if I'm being honest with you. But at the same time, it's we, we, we can't ignore those voices. Thank you, Majid. Majid's book, The Art of Disruption, is out now. The 
collapse of the Arcadia Group and Debitums comes at the end of a year that has cost an astonishing hundreds of thousands of jobs, the OBR predict that by spring next year there will be one million more unemployed people. But are we looking at the end of the city centre as a shopping destination or a transformation in how we shop that could trigger a recovery in the high street economic ecosystem? We spoke to consumer journalist Harry Wallop, who thinks that COVID could see off the traditional retailers but won't see off the shoppers. Uh, Yeah, I mean, things weren't great for the high street in general before COVID for all sorts of reasons. Uh, There was all sorts of consumer uncertainty. People were gently, gently shifting to online. Long-running rents and leases. It's really accelerated the debate on business rates. If you want the high street to survive and city centres to thrive, Uh, you're going to have to stop taxing uh, shops as physical properties. And that's not really in dispute. The question is whether the government can afford to do that. So, yeah, no, the high street wasn't in a great state. Uh, Mostly, actually, nothing more sophisticated than there just being too much capacity. There were too many shops. But I don't think COVID and the effects of COVID at the end of the high street, uh, people still very much want to enjoy the sociable aspects There's two real structural issues, though, it's shone a very harsh light on. One are big city centres, just too reliant on office workers, uh, tourists. They will obviously return, uh, but will the office workers? I'm not so sure. And then the other thing is the department stores look to doomed business model. The collapse of Arcadia and Debenhams, it's kind of easy just to get lost in the wash of bad news with COVID. I mean, it's a huge number of people who've lost their jobs. It's 25,000 jobs. But that compares to the 11,000 people employed in the fishing industry of Britain. I mean, gosh, if the amount of energy that went into supporting the fishermen went into the retail sector, life would be a very different place. Now, in the old days, people losing their jobs when a shop collapsed, and it, gosh, happened every single January after the Christmas sales, one of the weaker players would go bust. There's always been great retailers waiting in the wings to pick up those workers. The worry is, is that the Arcadia and Debenhams collapse think, who is going to employ these people? Because the fastest growing retailers at the moment, they're all online. And then we've got these huge, big sites. There's no way that all of these will find a new tenant. And we will have some town centres turning into a ghost town. Uh, Well, COVID forced a lot of people to take the internet far more seriously. I mean, it sounds crazy that some people weren't taking it seriously, but it is true. We we don't actually. Uh, The metropolitan elite uh, just presume that everyone shops at Ocado and uh, uses Amazon Prime, but that's just not true. The really interesting thing was actually a lot of tiny independent suppliers going direct to consumer. So we'd seen it before COVID, the kind of subscription box model, you know, Harry's razor blades and, um, you know, get a new beer every week from some beer box. And they seem terribly niche. But then suddenly a lot of these uh, companies tried out this model and and you had things like restaurant suppliers. Uh, They pivoted to direct to consumer. And so all sorts of people now are getting amazing food and drink and other stuff as well, direct to their home, cutting out, of course, the retailer. So I think the fascinating thing will be next year or next couple of years, how many middlemen on the Internet will will collate these different suppliers? Will we no longer actually want to shop 
via Argos, you know, John Lewis or Debenhams, but we go to slightly interesting, more specialist uh, middlemen who will bring us amazing, gosh, I don't know, socks and underwear or, or stuff for the bathroom. Uh, so I think that's going to be really interesting to see. Ros, if physical shopping is in terminal decline replaced by delivery, what does that mean for employment? Should something be done or should we let it go and concentrate on just reskilling? I think we have to be very clear about the other kinds of jobs that are open to people because when jobs are lost in high street retail, those jobs are effectively replaced by jobs in warehouses run by companies like Amazon and delivery drivers. There are relatively few warehouses, so that presents a geographic problem because when you've got people working in retail, they're all over. But these warehouses, they tend to be pretty inaccessible to public transport, near motorways, not not in the same places at all. And they're not as flexible often. There's a lot of shift work, which is really difficult to combine with caring for families. And they're not sociable. It's a totally different sort of job working in a warehouse than working in a shop. So I think there's Mm. going to have to be a big effort to say to people, look, these jobs are disappearing. You might enjoy, you might get a lot out of a job, for example, in uh, working in a care home or working in some other caring capacity or moving into something like teaching, which is a face-to-face job and is probably more suited to the skills of people who've been working in retail. Mm. Yes, I mean, areas that have no shops, to use Wallop's description, feel like ghost towns. They're less well lit, less they feel less safe, less welcoming. Counterintuitively, they feel less populated, even though they're actually more populated. What about the well-being of citizens? Is there a risk in allowing everything local to disappear? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's there's an element of that. And, you know, I mean, when I think of, you know, where I live, my local high street, or even just growing up, you know, the sort of the downtown area, I mean, these are where communities kind of come together and kind of one of the only places where they are like physically together. And yeah, I, I hadn't actually really thought of the, the safety element before, but I definitely think, you know, even just, you know, as a woman going for a run, say, in the, I, I feel really safe going down a high street that's like, you know, bustling with people and, and shops that are open, uh, less so when it's sort of just, you know, a, a dark street that's sort of, yeah, the ghost town. Finally, tis the season when Spotify tells you the top songs, artists, albums and genres you've been streaming while locked indoors in 2020. And you also find out how partners, children, housemates and other password thieves have been abusing your Spotify account to play Baby Shark all day. So everyone has started sharing their Spotify unwrapped lists, or is it wrapped? I am confused. I only listen to vinyl, but I'm told this streaming malarkey is really taking off. Um, Yasmin, as the young Louis to my Lestat, I look to you to quicken me, to explain how this all works and what it means. And even as I read that joke, I realized you're probably too young to get that interview with a vampire reference. It went right over my head. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what is it? How does it work? Yeah, so I mean, just very simply, it's Spotify telling you what your music consumption looked, and your podcast consumption, I should say, for, for the purposes of this, looked like during the year. So it basically, it'll tell you, you listen to Taylor Swift for... 560 hours, for example. And, you know, these are the top songs. So, yeah, it basically just tells you more than you knew about yourself when it comes to your song choices. 
Amazing. So MPs have been sharing their Spotify unwrapped lists too. So what does that tell us about them? Let's let's put these lists to the panel. So Zara Sultana, Labour Coventry South. BTS, Taylor Swift, One Direction, Lewis Capaldi, Halsey. What do we think of that? Strong. Oh. Very is, is it? Very poppy. What is BTS? BTS is a Korean pop group. And oh, I've heard of them. Pop, like a new <laughs> genre called K-pop. Nadia Whittam, uh, she's an MP for Nottingham East Labour, and she's the baby of the house. So she's the youngest MP currently in the house. So her list is Cardi B, Young T and Bugsy, Skepta, Megan the <laughs> Stallion. If if literally if the production team had made all those four things up, I really would not know. <laughs> so, so who's going to help me through it's that? It's not one? going to be me, I'm afraid. It's, Sorry, guys. It's, it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, a lot of US hip hop that are in that. Like Cardi B is like probably arguably the um, biggest female hip hop. Oh, it's one of the hip hop biggest hip hop artists in the world at the moment. She had a very controversial song which caused a lot of outrage <laughs> entitled WAP. I'm not going to um, tell you what that stands for because it, I don't think it'll be appropriate. But um, you can go okay. yourselves. <laughs> okay. Um, Luke Pollard, uh, Shadow Environment Secretary for Labour, uh, likes his mega pop. So he's got Lady Gaga, Madonna, Elton John, Melanie C. I know all of those. If Luke Pollard is not gay, <laughs> he should be. <laughs> Councillor Matt Nathan, um, Labour Clerkenwell, is very indie. Phoebe Bridges, Connor Oberst, Beach House, Arcade Fire. Again, these could all be made up. I wouldn't have a clue. What what is this list, Yasmin? Oh gosh. Um I mean I don't I know Arcade Fire, but that's all I know. I, I must say that's not what I'm familiar with. It's niche stuff, isn't it? Niche stuff. Um <laughs> now, Majid, as mayor, you appointed a hip hop artist as Sheffield's first poet laureate. Mm. And and yet I happen to know your top five songs are A Change is Gonna Come by Aretha Franklin, Runaway by Kanye West, Menak Wala Menni by Inez, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free by Nina Simone, and the uh, Italian anti-fascist uh, song, Bella Ciao. <laughs> so what happened? Where's all your hip-hop? <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting year, you see, Alex. <laughs> I've got a very eclectic music taste, but like Bella Child, you know, I, the reason I kind of came about it was there's a TV series called Money Heist, which so kind of okay. featured a big part of that song. And then it just kind of, I just kept playing that. And yeah. You know the history, right? Yes, that it I was a big know, I do know the sort history. of anthem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's um, and I have to say, I listened to Menakwala Meni, and it's a absolutely brilliant, brilliant tune. <laughs> it really um, is. Yasmin, you think it's been a particularly weird year for song lists because of the lockdown. Explain. Yes. I mean, I just, I took a look like everyone else at my uh, Spotify unwrapped and I just didn't recognize like my music taste because all of them 
were basically music I would listen to while working, which I wouldn't say is like, so, you know, a lot of like either classical or instrumental or, you know, just like from, from movies. Um, so, you know, nothing that I think I would put, like say is my particular music taste is just what I can write to. And then it just occurred to me that all I've done this year is sit at my laptop working from home. So, um, yeah, I think so it's all <laughs> sort of background elevator music, basically. Yeah. That with a little mix of like, you know, maybe what comforts you, what kind of like got you through the year. I also listened to Bella Chow because I really liked Money Heist. So it's, you know, it's just a weird assortment. Nice. I, I think 2021 will touch wood, um, give us a better indication of, of what our music taste actually is. R- Roz, any embarrassing choices? Well, I wouldn't you'd say that they share. were necessarily my choices. I mean, the Lego Movie 2 soundtrack is uh, occupies the top two places, although I do glad to know one because the Lego <laughs> Movie 2 soundtrack is very good. There is also the Jungle Book soundtrack, ditto, and quite a lot of Taylor Swift because my daughter is pretty much into Taylor Swift. For my, in terms of what I listen to, um, there's some Christine and the Queens, which I've really got into this year because uh, that's so that's been fun. And also um, some Zadok the Priest. I like to play that when I get back from the school run and I have to sit down in front of my laptop and get started on some difficult piece of editing. And that gets me in the mood for tackling the the, the pros involved. That's kind of amazing. I I can see you preparing to take over the world listening to Zadok the Priest. (laughs) I wish. I'm just going to say one thing that's great regarding Spotify because at times like you can get into a habit of just listening to what you know. So it's like, how do you go about finding new music? So it's got a great feature called um, Spotify Discover, which songs that it thinks that you might like for using, I don't know, algorithms or whatever. And it's always really, really good. So if anyone who doesn't have, like if you look for your uh, Spotify Discover, it's it's just great music that you may not necessarily thought of listening to or reaching out, but it just introduces you to a lot of interesting stuff. Excellent. Other streaming services and (laughs) vinyl are available. (laughs) We've come to the end of the podcast. Thank you to our panel, Yasmin Serhan. Thanks for having me. Ros Taylor. Thank you. And Majid Majid. Muchas gracias. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter and Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you'll be able to get a ticket for our special Christmas Zoom on the 17th of December. You will also get a shout-out on the show and it will sound something like this. Thanks and best wishes from me to Kira Minnett, Frank, and Gabrielle Sino. Thanks from me to Julie Giles, Marie Hullis, and Simon Fathers. And my gratitude and good wishes to Ben Holmes, Emma, and Jan McVerry. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker, saying over and out. <laughs>